Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast show, a podcast that helps foster respect through inclusion, service, and equity. Now here's your host, Stacey Hegarty. Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast. I'm Stacey Hegarty, Vice President of Equity and Inclusion for Envision Rise. Joining me today is Kalik Sims, the founder of the Higher Learning Group. Kalik, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Well, talk to me about the Higher Learning Group. You say that you're an educational consulting group for a diverse world. Be more specific about that. I know you're working with some K through 12 groups and working on educators becoming much more well-versed in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So how did you get started? I'm a classroom teacher. I'm a K-12 teacher and focus most of my work in secondary education. I'm certified in secondary and uh, was an English teacher and started to do diversity work in the schools where I was working, which were mostly independent schools in the Baltimore, D.C. area for several years, almost 16 years. I was a teacher and a diversity practitioner. And in schools, this work has, even in the short time that I've been doing the work over the last you know, 20 years or so has totally and completely evolved, has a whole body of research and all kinds of avenues that schools and nonprofits that do education work are exploring when it comes to making sure essentially their place of business, whether it's a corporation or a nonprofit or a school, is offering equitable options to all in that community. So it could be teachers, it could be students, it could be parents and families in the community. In the case of schools, it could be other employees and staff in the case of, you know, nonprofits in corporate America. So I generally work with students and teachers trying to improve the education offerings for all kinds of students from all kinds of backgrounds and making sure that teachers feel equipped to work with all kinds of learners and that they themselves have the cultural competence that they'd like to see in their own lives and in their practice. I love talking with folks who either have been classroom teachers or are currently classroom teachers, because that is really the front line of everything that happens in our world. And several months ago, we had a teacher on from the Atlanta area, and he's a middle school math teacher, and he's a white teacher working in a black and brown school. And he was talking about, hey, white teacher, here are the things you need to know about teaching black and brown children. Tell me about your experience as an educator first. What was it like in the classroom for you? And how did your journey from classroom teacher to diversity, equity, and inclusion professional actually take place? So as I said, I was working in private schools mostly. And in those spaces, I was one of few African-American teachers experiencing the same kinds of feelings that students who are underrepresented in those communities feel and trying to kind of navigate a space that doesn't feel like it was made for you or feels like it's making an effort, but maybe not quite there when it comes to being fully inclusive, being fully aware of the experience of the school from the perspective of a group that may not be large in number at the school, that may not have had much representation in the curriculum or the life of the school. And so I was kind of drawn to this work for personal reasons as a teacher, just wanting to find a support system of other teachers of color, administrators of color in these same kinds of schools to just kind of, you know, be there to talk about these things and 
just to have people who understood to bounce ideas off of and just kind of figure out how to make it and how to be successful as a teacher and how to grow in my profession as a teacher who was really the first. I was the first African-American English teacher in the upper school. I'm at the school where I got my first job. And so it was just like very new for me. I hadn't attended a school like this one and in terms of the demographic makeup. So it was just a new world. And while I felt like um, it was an important place for me to be in order to kind of bring the diversity that the school had never had before, I did kind of feel that extra pressure. And I know that students felt, in my experience, also felt those pressures. So that's how I kind of became interested in doing diversity work with students, leading affinity groups, having, you know, the students would often come up with ideas for clubs and activities, and they would need an advisor for that club. In these schools, often there are all kinds of opportunities for students to, you know, demonstrate autonomy and leadership and kind of start something new that they can bring to the school. And so often that included cultural identity groups. So they would have, you know, maybe a Jewish student organization or a Black student union or maybe a Muslim student association. And they would need an advisor for those clubs if a student said they wanted to start that. And I started off as an advisor for the Black student union and started to really kind of listen to students and hear their perspectives and kind of leverage them against my own and just kind of took it from there. Started going to conferences, doing all kinds of training, reading up on this field as a kind of field of study. I had my master's in education and my focus was language and culture. So I already was kind of doing research and thinking about these issues from an academic standpoint. But as I said, when I first started, there wasn't the same huge body of work that there is now around, you know, diversity and equity education for secondary schools and, you know, what that actually looks like as a profession. There weren't many schools that had full-time diversity directors. I would ultimately become a full-time diversity director five or so years in to my career. And so the whole profession was actually starting to kind of crystallize as I moved away from the classroom and into the field. So it's been really exciting and quite an evolution, you know, for the field, but also for me personally and also for the students that I've worked with that I'm still friends with and just have followed them into their careers. Some of them have gone into diversity. Some of them are doing diversity work, but not necessarily in that field as a central part of what they do, but there's always something that's on their mind. So that's pretty exciting that you, know, you can see the legacy continue in students. And as so often happens, it started off as you just volunteering to do this. And it turned into something much larger than that. So let's talk about the higher learning group. This is a very student-focused effort, as opposed to being faculty-led or admin-led. This is very student-focused. So I'd like you to tell our listeners about how this works, what the students end up doing, and what some of the outcomes are. Yeah, so I started Higher Learning Group. I'm a full-time education consultant focusing on diversity and equity and working with individual schools as a contractor or school systems as a contractor. I started that about five years ago, as I said, having been a teacher and then a full-time diversity director, which is an administrative position in K-12 schools, many K-12 schools, and now feeling like, okay, I've, you know, really developed a body of work and an approach and a network. Now I'm ready to kind of do this on my own. And so the work, because it started with students, for me, I really launched my business on a model that was very student-centered. So my signature program for the last, gosh, even before I had my own 
consulting company, my signature, you know, work as a diversity professional in schools was leading this regional diversity conference for students called the Baltimore Student Diversity Leadership Conference. And I ran that conference as an independent contractor for the last five years when I first started my company. And essentially, it is a training and leadership development program for high school students in which we as diversity professionals, adults, teach and work with high school students who are interested in this work in their various leadership roles in their schools. So whether they're student government president or head of the athletic association, not necessarily in elected positions, but just students who are interested in diversity work um, because of their personal identity groups um, and just personal interests. We work with them to create workshops and present those workshops on equity issues to their students in an annual conference. And so that annual conference did not start with me by any stretch. It actually existed probably 20 years before I even started doing this work. The progenitor of the Baltimore Student Diversity Conference actually is still around. He's a mentor of mine and he's still around doing this work in independent schools. He's about to retire, but he started and he gives me, they never really kept track of the time it started, but he says it started in the 80s, in the mid 80s. And they were bringing students together from independent schools in the Baltimore area to do precisely what I said, to talk to them and teach them, kind of give them the benefit of the knowledge and expertise of their teachers so that they could apply these issues in their lives as students in leadership positions and to help them navigate the waters of independent schools and private schools from a very personal standpoint. So they've done workshops on all kinds of things. They do workshops on microaggressions, on code switching, on implicit bias and unconscious bias. They apply all of those anti-racism. They apply all those concepts to student life in very real ways. You know, what is it like to be a member of a team that is, you know, a predominantly white team in which there's a certain culture that people of color historically have not been a part of, let's say the lacrosse team or the golf team or some of the sports that are segregated still or have very little representation from groups that, you know, weren't there, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago when the country clubs and other places where those sports became popular did not accept people of color. So what does it feel like to be a student of color on those teams at your school? Or what does it feel like as a student who wants to take a knee at a football game and don't feel like your coach or your athletic association is open to your taking a knee. So what does that mean for you to kind of take a stance politically or use your platform as a student to take a political stance? How do you use social media, you know, as an activist platform? So they tackle all kinds of issues, but they're very relevant to high school students. So we're not like indoctrinating them or telling them, you know, to think a certain way or be a certain way. We just trying to raise their awareness around how these issues may impact their lives. And it's interesting that what you're talking about and what I'm hearing a lot of is diversity of thought, that you're not telling them there is this one way you need to think about these issues, that you're really giving students the agency to determine how they want to look at these issues, what issues they even want to look at, and what impact it may have on them. So you've got students who obviously maybe identify as part of underrepresented or marginalized or minoritized community. What about students who would describe themselves perhaps as an ally? You know, that word's a little tricky for me because you don't really get to call yourself an ally. Somebody else decide that you are. 
students that are part of a majority group? Yeah, so we definitely have had students who have identified as members of a majority group. And remember, we're talking about a broad range of diversity categories. So when we say a majority group, when you're talking about race, you're talking about white students. But when you're talking about religion, you're talking about Christian students. And when you're talking about LGBTQ, you're talking about heterosexual students or cisgender students. So in any given identity group, there are kind of majorities. And so that means that I could be a minority in one category, but I may be in the majority in another category. So we talk about kind of the privilege that comes for all of us, depending on the context. And I'm in a privileged category as a college graduate, right? And a privileged category is a person who identifies as middle class. And so yet I'm not in a privileged category when it comes to my race. And so we talk a lot about that kind of intersectionality. I'm not in a privileged category when it comes to my gender. And so we talk about intersectionality in the sense of wearing multiple identities, particularly race and gender, but also others. And we talk about the fact that white students have a racial privilege because of the you know historic connotations of race in our country, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have a story and don't have places where they can enter this conversation, having experienced being an outsider or marginalized, maybe because of social class, um, maybe because of religion, maybe because of you know sexual orientation or gender identity. So we really try to make it such that no one is trying to you know kind of compete for you know whose struggle is the worst or you know who can talk this way or that way or who has the claim to the conversation over anyone else. We obviously you know want to be relevant. So we do talk really honestly about race and racial injustice in this country. We don't try to water things down. We do talk about heteronormativity. We do talk about sexism and gender inequities. So we try not to make it such that we're not seeing and we're being kind of blind to the issues. But at the same time, we want all the students to feel like this is your opportunity to find yourself in this conversation, however that might look for you, because we really want students to come together. We don't want it to be a divisive kind of work. And a lot of people think that when they think about diversity, they think about the other, they think about, you know, separating people into categories and kind of creating kind of, a, you know, a disunity. And we really do see this work as something that should be unifying because we do feel like everybody has something to offer to this conversation. That's something that we talk about in Advisor Rise, that inclusion includes everybody. There's almost no one that I can think of that doesn't fall into a minoritized or marginalized or underrepresented community in some way, shape, or form. There are very few people on the planet who are pure privilege. And I love that this is so student-driven because for me, when I think about ageism and groups that are written off as not being a part of the conversation or not having anything to really contribute, teachers are probably number one on the list of an age group of individuals who people just go, oh, teenagers, they don't know. So what are some of the outcomes you've seen of what these students are doing? Well, I mean, the students are really the secret sauce of diversity work in schools, as far as I'm concerned, because most teachers, even though, you know, the profession is not always rewarded monetarily or even given the same respect as maybe it did a long time ago, most teachers are still very much in this work for students. Like when they can just block out everything else, they 
become teachers because they want to work with students. They like students, they value students. And so when you're talking about something like diversity and equity, which can be a polarizing topic, particularly in schools that have, you know, really strong traditions and a really strong kind of demographic base that hasn't shifted very much in a long time. These issues can be very hard to swallow for some communities because it feels like you're asking the school to like do a tremendous culture shift. It is the sense that we're, you know, kind of changing who we are essentially when we're, you know, saying we want to radically, right? revisit these subjects of equity and diversity and who's here and the fact that these schools actually are hardwired in many ways to fit a very, very, very rarefied group of people. And so now that the schools look different, in order to make the schools inclusive, you do have to really kind of do some retooling. And so when you talk about students and their role, most schools if they cannot really wrap their minds around the whys of this for any other reason, when they hear students saying, this is true for me, this happened to me here at this school, this happened to me in this class, this happened to me in this extracurricular activity, this is what my family is going through and how it affects my family, you know, to come to this school or to be a part of this. And it's like irrefutable, it's irrefutable data. And because you have a group of students kind of coming to the floor and saying this, it isn't an isolated, right? It's not like you're just talking about one student and then, you know, you can address it that way. You really have to address it in a systemic way. We're talking about groups of students over time coming together. And that's what was so exciting about kind of the change and reckoning that we saw, you know, post George Floyd in this country, but particularly in schools and independent schools in this work, you really saw schools opening their ears to student voices in you know in a way that they hadn't for a while you know they had been listening but they hadn't really been moving and so what that reckoning did was to open up schools to making some pretty significant shifts in the way they were having these conversations and also in policies and Really, if nothing else, most schools created opportunities for community conversations and focus groups by students and alumni in ways that they had never done before. Now, where do the adults fit in here? We're so used to, especially in a K-12 environment, that the grown-ups in the front of the room, the children are in their seats and learning from the grown-ups. That doesn't sound like this. So where do the adult educators fit into this? Yeah. So that is kind of where my work is moving now. As I said, I ran the Student Diversity Leadership Conference for many years, and I also groomed other teachers who are interested in kind of taking more of a leadership role in that conference to kind of step up and start to run it. And so I'm kind of taking a back seat to that work and really starting to move more in the direction of working with teachers more and more. When I started my business, I thought I would be working mostly with students um, because that's what I had been doing in the past. And more and more schools are asking me to come in to do trainings for their teachers, also for boards coming in and doing trainings for their boards of trustees and working with their administrators as well. So for adults, that learning curve can be steep. You know, it's just like technology. The students are way beyond us. <laughs> we need to catch up. 
right? But even though they're way beyond us in some ways, because they kind of are more audacious when it comes to speaking out, they don't have the same things at stake as many adults. They don't have to worry about their job security when they speak out on these issues. You know, they don't have to rewrite the curriculum when they comment on the curriculum not being diverse enough. So a lot of this heavy lifting when it comes to the structural elements that need to take place or the stakes that are involved really do fall on adults to implement and also to kind of be brave and to kind of take the initiative with stakes that could, you know, be fairly costly to them professionally. And so it really is important to have this work with adults to do the training and not just training, like, you know, here are the definitions, this is what you need to be aware of. But, you know, I use a lot of hypothetical situations based on my work with students. They're not really hypothetical, but, you know, I don't name names and I don't go into too much detail to reveal anyone's identity. But we do a lot of role playing. We do a lot of, let's say you're a teacher in this classroom and this dynamic takes place. What do you do? What would be your way of dealing with this? Would you have support on the administrative level? Does your school have a diversity policy that you can kind of use as a way to protect yourself as an educator that I'm doing my job. It's consistent with, you know, our philosophy as a school and our diversity commitments as a school. So we talk a lot, not only about what is diversity and equity and inclusion and kind of the intellectual side of it, reading the body of work and so forth, but we also talk about how, (laughs) how to do the work. And the last thing I'll say is we talk a lot with adults about what kinds of schools they attended. And really that's the first thing we talk about. We talk about individuals and that's a really big part of my approach. It's not unique to me, but certainly something that I feel is important, which is individual reflection. So you're a teacher in this school, but what kind of school did you attend? Was it a diverse school? What kind of curriculum did you have? You're an English teacher. What kind of English curriculum did you have, not only in secondary school, but in college? What kind of preparation did you have? Um, And what kind of school experiences did you have? And how does that influence the way you teach and what you teach? What kind of family background do you have? What kind of neighborhood did you grow up in? In what area and in what time period, whether you're conscious or not, how does that impact the way you teach, the way you work with certain students? And it really is exciting to see teachers kind of do that oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't think my family background had anything to do with how I teach. And it doesn't necessarily in the present, but it does kind of unconsciously. And so we spend a lot of time, the first step doing that with adults. I love that because so many adults have not had the opportunity to actually sit and consciously reflect on all those things that just go into making us who we are and who we are in our job can in so many different ways that we don't even think about. I've been in, had a couple of conversations with folks where the conversation was, when was the first time you had a teacher who wasn't your race? That is usually, especially for white people, it's a very eye-opening experience to really sit and think about when was the first time that that happened. I've got friends who have never had that experience, who have gone all the way through graduate school and have never had a teacher of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It was one of the toughest decisions that I made early in my profession, which was to teach in a school that was not predominantly students of color, because I actually really had a strong commitment to teach students of color, understanding that I wanted to give back to my own community. As a young teacher, I really saw some of the inequities in the schools in my area 
and, you know, wanted to go back and teach in those schools and being recruited to teach in independent schools, primarily for diversity. I know that's why, you know, I was recruited. I think I was a great teacher and I had great credentials, but I also know that I brought a diversity to the school that they did not have. And really having to make that tough choice, which I think a lot of people, women, people of color have to make when you're kind of maybe not serving directly the community that you seek to serve as part of your career. But you know that it's important, you know, to be a representative, so to speak, for the broader community, because that speaks volumes too, to make sure that they're not you know, generations of white students that have never had a black teacher that they have to have a black teacher who's willing to teach in a school that may be a predominantly white school. So I definitely heard other teachers of color and professionals say like, it really is tough to be the work at the same time as you're doing the work when it comes to diversity. And many professionals don't think about being the work at the same time as they're doing the work. And so the more you can say, you know, hey, did you realize that you are representing an identity? You're not, quote unquote, you know, sometimes when people don't ever, you know, they've never talked about race before in terms of themselves and they don't realize they have a racial identity, even if they're white (laughs) or cultural identity, even if they're white, because they don't realize. I know we've talked about this before, Stacey, when we were talking about, you know, the anthropological approach and how like we all belong to some type of culture. You know, it may not look like an ethnic or racial culture all the time, but it does have rules. It has a language. It has certain, you know, habits of mind. It has traditions. And so many people who feel like they're part of a mainstream don't see that they are following these rules and these patterns and operating in this space that other people need to be introduced to and kind of taught explicitly (laughs) those rules or else they're behind in, you know, trying to navigate those spaces successfully. So. Well, we are almost out of time. So I do want to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know how they can find you, how they can get in touch with you, because what your business is doing is helping to create the culture of a school. And then all of those students who go on and graduate and go into whatever work they go into, whether that's a career or something different, they're taking that with them. So what happens in K-12 education is critical to what happens for the rest of their life. So how can people get in touch with you, Kalik? My website is higherlearninggroup.com and my email is Kalik, K-A-L-I-Q, at higherlearninggroup.com. Well, thank you so much for this interesting conversation. I want to talk to you some more about some of these things. So we'd like to have you back so that we can talk more specifically about things like code switching and culture in schools. Thank you, Kalik. Have a wonderful day. And if you'd like more information about Envision Rise, you can find us at envisionrise.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, diversity and inclusion should not be treated as a one-off initiative. And so with your help, we can get this message to more people. Subscribe, rate, and review the show and be a part of making a difference because it starts with you.